Hey everyone, this episode is going to be a little bit different from our traditional format, but it has been highly requested and for good reason. Today we want to cover the dilemma of choosing to go to graduate school or to go into industry. Welcome to It's a Material World, the show that uncovers why material science will change the world, with your hosts, David Ye and Puneet Upadhyay. Before we get into the episode, we have a free MSc company database categorized by industry sector, location, as well as internship and full-time titles, so you can find that link in the show notes below. And without further ado, let's get started. We want to emphasize that this decision is very specific for each individual, and there's no comprehensive right or wrong answer. But there's a lot of factors that come into play, and we have two great perspectives of the same question that we want to go over today. Hopefully, this will point out some factors that you may not have thought about when you want to attend graduate school or go into industry, and hopefully gives you some things to reflect on and resonate with going forward, as well as some actionable advice from our two panelists here. Without further ado, we are very excited to bring on two very good friends of ours, Lee Tarasky, a PhD student in MSc at Stanford University, as well as Sam Williams, a senior associate electrical engineer at L3 Harris Technologies. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. Yeah, I mean, we're excited just to share these two perspectives, followed their journey for, I guess, the past four or five years. And so we'll first start out with Sam, um, I remember, you know, a couple of years ago, you were back and forth on this decision between industry and grad school. I honestly thought you would choose grad school, but I know a lot of factors came into play a couple of years ago. So what ended up being maybe the driving factors behind your decision to work for L3 Harris after graduating with your bachelor's degree? Yeah. So as you said, for, for most of my bachelor's degree, I was focused very heavily on research and I sort of expected to enroll in a PhD program after graduation. But towards the end of the degree, I started to realize that I didn't understand materials engineering as well as I understood other fields of engineering. Uh, and that was really concerning to me because it sort of felt like I'm getting this degree and I don't understand how it fits into engineering and industry. Uh, and so that, that was enough for me to consider just working in industry for a year with, with the caveat, like, oh, maybe I'll work in industry and then immediately go to grad school after like a year or so. But at least I, I decided to give myself that chance. And now that I've been in my position for, for a bit longer, I understand the engineering industry or just industry in general a lot better than I did in college. Uh, I don't see it as this monolithic entity anymore. I think when you're an undergrad, you sort of think, hey, I'm going to go to industry and be an engineer in industry. And then that's sort of where the train of thought ends because you don't know the kinds of engineering jobs available, right? Right. And even just in my department, right, there's there's several people who have been hired around the same time as me who have a bachelor's degree in material science and engineering. And my work involves a lot of analytical work in the lab, but their work might involve things like process engineering or, you know, heavily focused on materials themed research and development and such. Uh, and that's just one department at one company. And so I, I think that sort of kept me going uh, in industry beyond the initial decision I made in college. And then I've also gotten a pretty good perspective. Uh, so I guess specifically the work environment industry turned out to be a pretty good fit for me. I didn't really know what it would be like until I tried it. And for me, work-life separation is really important. And that's very doable in industry where, you know, you, you work for, for a period of time and then you go home and 
you know, at least in most companies, you can kind of turn your brain off and then focus on your personal life. And that, that separation works uniquely well for me. I think there are people where the opposite is true, you know, and they, they can't stop thinking about what they're doing. And so academia ends up being a good fit. But for me, it, it's sort of worked out. Yeah, that's awesome. I I know that in the, just saying going into industry is very broad in general. And I guess that's maybe a shameless plug for our career development course. We try to provide more value there, provide more perspectives there. But I totally agree. Is there a reason that you for instance, didn't choose maybe like the BSMS accelerated program. I know David and I did that or are doing that. And that was kind of our blend between taking an extra year for, for school and giving us a leg up in the job search and then and ending up going into industry. So I just wanted to hear your thoughts there. The reason I didn't do the BSMS program, I think is, is kind of not very interesting, which is that there's a cutoff, like a credit hour cutoff, I think, you have to apply before that cutoff. <laughs> and while I was under that cutoff, I was very focused on, like I, I expected to go to a PhD program. And I think the BSMS program is, is typically just a coursework-based master's and didn't really align with what I thought my career trajectory would be at the time. I, I do see the advantage of being able to start out with a master's. Since I, I, I see people in my department that, that have done something like that and it certainly does benefit them. I mean, I will say the benefit of waiting is that it means that you could do a master's in something other than material science. True. Yeah. You can give yourself a few years to kind of get some experiences and decide what direction you want to go. And I mean, that could very well just be, okay, I am now ready for the master's in material science. But for me, I've started to become interested in other kinds of engineering. And so I, I, I can go down that path for my master's instead of yeah, I know David saw that uh, credit hour cutoff and was like, nope, <laughs> that's <laughs> that does not apply to me. <laughs> yeah. Number one advice is just talk to your recruiting people, not recruiting, but uh, advisement ladies. And if, it, if you guys can make it work, you can break some rules along the way. Uh, but I believe I actually had rules instituted after I joined to stop people like me. <laughs> the David Yang rule. <laughs> yeah. I guess going to Lily now. I know you've had experience with both industry and academia, where Sam was very much focused on academia for the first part of his career. Uh, in addition to your research, you've also had a couple internships with GE Aviation. I think you even got LinkedIn famous for a summer. <laughs> yeah. What did you learn in comparison between research and industry? And then what led you to make the choice to go to graduate school? Yeah, so that's exactly right. I um, had some full-time research experiences working with a professor at Georgia Tech. also did some part-time research during semesters. And then I did uh, two summers working with GE Aviation. And I would say, obviously, this is biased to GE Aviation and my roles there specifically, but the, the differences I picked up in my research and industry, one of them is with, kind of like Sam mentioned, the work-life balance. The research is extremely flexible which can be really nice. You can go home early on Friday because you're going to go into the lab on Saturday instead or whatever. Or you can work, you know, really hard four days a week and then take off three days sometimes, depending on, you know, if you have specific meetings, you can really choose your own schedule. Whereas in industry, I had a super specific, I worked from, you know, seven to four every day, but then I was off on the weekends and I was off after 4 p.m. every single day. So I think there's advantages to both. I definitely get like the consistency can be really nice with industry, but also the flexibility. I 
something I hadn't realized till I had the industry job was things like, oh, I need to go to the bank. Well, guess what? If I need to go to the bank, I have to like really zip out to the parking lot after work to get there before the bank closes. I hadn't thought about that stuff because in the research side, you just go to the bank during the day and work it up you know, later on. So that's one thing. Another thing I think is in terms of the work, and this is where I think it really depends on the company. In research, you have a lot of freedom to uh, work on a project as long as it stays interesting. And until you understand everything, you keep on working on it. And that can be really fulfilling to feel like you know all the ins and outs of this little corner of the universe. Whereas in industry, you work on a project as long as the company thinks it's monetarily beneficial to them. And that can mean you find a solution that works and then you stop. And like me as a scientist, I'm like, okay, this solution works, but I know there's a better one. And um, my boss had to tell me, Lily, this solution's good enough. You need to move on. Stop making this a science project. <laughs> um, and so I, I feel like that was maybe a sign to me. I, I like the science project side of things. I like keeping on working until I know the problem is, you know, more solved. And a PhD where you work on something for up to, you know, six years is a great way to get that kind of experience. Another thing that was kind of in the back of my mind was as the pandemic was approaching, I saw graduate school as a really stable five-year job that could get me through the pandemic. Whereas I'd heard a lot of new hires at industry jobs, if the company had to cut positions, they were going to cut those new hires. And I was a year younger than Sam. I, I would have been joining right during the pandemic, it would have been, um, it might've been a really tough way to start a full-time position. Yeah, for sure. Can you just tell us maybe very briefly, like what your current research project entails, I guess, to whatever extent you're, you're allowed to talk about it. But I'm just curious about like some examples of PhD projects that might take, you know, years and years to keep pulling at that string and eventually complete. Yeah. So I'm just joining my lab. I don't I don't know if this is a project I'll stay on for five years, but here's some examples of what I'm doing and how it could keep dragging out. I'm making polymers to run an electrocatalysis reaction. So you apply electricity and then it drives a chemical reaction. The currently I'm working with one polymer and one chemical reaction and one aqueous solvent and all I'm doing is like editing the parameters of how long is this running for or what's the voltage that it's being applied. But I could try different polymers and see if, you know, how does altering this ring structure change things? I could try different solvents and say, hey, what if there's a solvent reaction that's causing this degradation? You can test the efficiency of the chemical reaction or you can test the um, stability of it over time. Uh, but there, there's a lot of ways that you can keep dragging a project out by changing little things incrementally. Yeah, that part about the good enough solution, I think, also shocked me going into industry. And especially with MSC, we're more inclined for startups or R&D positions. And where academia is like, let's figure everything out. It's very much the shortest path to success. Uh, we don't care. Just find a solution. So it definitely caught me off by surprise as well. And so back to you, Sam, I guess first, like, do you see that in your job? Like, I know that you are more computational um, with your job. So is that the same type of level of let's cut it off? Like once you have something that has a high enough probability to succeed, is that something? And then uh, we'll go into uh, other factors of your job after that. I mean, most of the projects I work on 
I suppose most of the, the large project I, projects that I work on are failure analysis projects for, for electronics. And so on these projects, we receive some sort of electronic component that is no longer working. And the people sending it to us want to figure out why it stopped so that they can sort of take the right corrective action. It could be that the design of the electronic system has some sort of problem that wasn't foreseen that's causing the circuit to like fry the component. It could be the person assembling it shocked it, like electrostatic discharge. You know, it could be a counterfeit component. There's, there's many possibilities, right? And then we work in the lab to narrow it down to just one, uh, and then we report that. And a lot of times, especially if it's like a, I guess I'll say like a high profile failure, the people that have initiated the work are going to want a very, very quick turnaround. Normally we need about a week. And so we, we tend to push back against that and say like, we, we can't release this until we're ready. I, I guess sort of treating it in the way that, that you do in academia, right? Where you wouldn't publish something that you're not actually confident in, or hopefully you wouldn't do that. <laughs> um, I mean, I, so I, I see what you're talking about on the conventional side of engineering, right? But then like within my specific day-to-day, -day, we try to push back on that a little bit so that the, the result of the analysis is actually useful, right? We don't want to release a result and be wrong because then the wrong corrective action would be taken and then the problem would be solved. That said, we do have a turnaround, right? About a week, uh, which is a lot faster than you would see in academia, so. I just wanted to provide a little bit of my perspective. It might be slightly different because yours is very much like government contract-based, right, Sam? Yeah. So like from the medical device industry, some of our like from the design of a medical device, that whole experience, that whole timeline takes like seven plus years, right? So we have some more time. We don't have as quick turnarounds. So I think it's also industry-based where one of our projects is involves, um, you know, improving like the safety and reducing the complaint rates of uh, certain medical devices. And so we get to take like a year long or two year long project, we get to create long-term solutions, but we also have to create short-term solutions that might not be like a complete fix, but they like patch things up. So that's a, just another perspective too, is you still have to be confident in your, in your answers and your solutions, but there can be longer term projects, maybe similar to like a PhD program of sorts. Another aspect of choosing industry over graduate school that we want to ask you was the financial investment of a PhD program and its return on investment compared to a BS or just a regular MSc degree here. When we think about the associated opportunity cost of the time it takes to go to grad school, I know you did a lot of research into this. So could you summarize the findings that you found from that? And overall, like, like what are the pros and cons from a financial aspect of going to grad school? Yeah, so let's let's consider two cases. Let's assume that somebody, they, they already have a bachelor's degree in material science and engineering, uh, and they're considering either getting a master's degree right after the bachelor's degree, such as through like a BSMS program, which would take one or two years, or getting the PhD right after the bachelor's degree, right, which would take potentially five or six. And so if you look at the, the salaries coming out at each degree level, I mean, the bachelor's degree is already going to pay quite well. Uh, the master's degree will pay better than that. And then the PhD will pay the highest of those three, right? And again, just on average, you can find, depending on industry or qualifications, variations from that. But because the PhD takes so long, because it takes five or six years, and because the United States, the stipend he receives quite low compared to industry pay, over the course of a career, 
somebody who got a PhD would likely end up making less or, or having a lower wealth at the end of their career if they're investing a certain percentage of their income compared to the person with a master's degree. And the, the, the critical thing is, you know, the person who graduates the master's degree and then works in industry for three years has that three or four years of income at the start of their career, percentage of which they presumably would invest for retirement. Uh, and so it comes out at the end such that if, if both people retire at the same time, that the person with a master's degree would have more money. But I, I think that this, this to me was really fascinating because it seems like a paradoxical result, right? But I don't know if it should be used uh, or, or weighted heavily when someone's trying to make a decision because any STEM degree or any STEM type career will, you know, sooner or later provide financial security. Uh, and if a PhD is a much better fit uh, and the, the low pay during the PhD isn't a problem, then there, there's no reason to not go for it. I guess it is worth considering even just more broadly. If someone is, it's like if you're, if you're trying to, to just make money, right, through your career so you can retire early, there are more effective ways to do it than, you know, deciding between the master's, PhD in material science, right? You can get a CS degree and then try to work at Facebook or Google, <laughs> invest almost everything that you make, including the, the stock options and such that you get, and then use that to retire really early. I, I think that the financial aspect is very important, but another thing that I, I personally considered a lot going through was what was my dream job after I graduated? And so even though that seems correct, like you would make more money over the lifetime, certain levels of jobs require certain levels of education. And so like, if I want to do any R&D, it would look like I would need a master's. So I would also include that, yes, you can make more, but if there's something you really want to do, make sure that the level of education you have is equivalent to what you need. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good point. So maybe just talking to people who are in companies or positions of interest and in seeing what's needed from a degree standpoint that could maybe dictate or help in making your decision as well versus bachelor's, master's, and PhD. That's a really good point. But while we're on the topic of finances, this one's for you, Lily. What should an MSE student consider when it comes to like financial aid, scholarships, stipends, grants, and just general cost of living that may not be readily apparent on the internet when you're attending grad school since the stipends might be lower than right, like a, a, a traditional engineering job right out of college? Yeah, so, so I can say... Um... David and I are both living in the Bay Area, and he probably makes about three times as much as I do. <laughs> um, so th that's a perspective based on other people I've, I've talked to who came with a BS to work here. That's definitely something to consider. Um, as far as trying to think about important parts of finances for PhD students, that's what I can talk about more than master's finances because I am a PhD student. Right. So one quick thing is don't forget to budget for health insurance and taxes especially remembering that depending on which state you're in, the taxes will change. So I moved from Tennessee with no income tax to California, which does have income tax. To say the least, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Another thing to think about is, so for a lot of students, the funding that you get will come directly from the school or the professor you're working with. And this is a really good reason to apply to several schools in your um, grad school application process because different schools will give you different stipends and even the um, amount of stipend versus the cost of living can vary. 
So there are schools that can give you what seems like a lower dollar amount, but when you compare the cost of living of their city, you would actually end up being able to save more money and go ahead and start investing as a PhD student. Additionally, some schools do provide funding opportunities for master's students. Like I know Stanford uh, allows master's students to start working um, some in research or as being teaching assistants as a way to recoup part of that investment. And for some schools, master's students have to pay fully out of pocket. And then as far as scholarships, so in grad school, the undergraduate equivalent scholarships is renamed fellowships. As far as I can tell, it's the same thing. It just gets a new name. <laughs> there are fellowships that are specific to schools. And this is something you can kind of look up online and see, you know, does this school have a lot of fellowship opportunities? If so, do I need to apply for them earlier than the regular application deadline? Or is it a fellowship that's automatically considered with my main application? So I have a fellowship from Stanford that I did not apply for. I applied to Stanford, I got into Stanford, and Stanford said, congrats, you got this extra fellowship. So that's something when you're thinking about which schools you want to apply for, schools with larger endowments and more fellowships like that can be beneficial. There's also nationwide fellowships, and all MSE students that are U.S. citizens should apply for these. And that's the NSF and the NDSEG. They have earlier deadlines than grad school applications, so make sure you stay on top of that. Don't wait till the last minute, but apply for those. And then the deal with those is every single person across the country gets the same amount. So NSF gives you $34,000 a year for three years. And $34,000 a year goes way farther for students at like the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign versus students at Stanford. So that's something to think about. If you think you have a good shot at one of those fellowships, think about, hey, I've, if, I, if you want to be saving a lot of money, Think about applying to some good schools in low cost of living areas, because there are definitely good schools that are still in low cost of living places. Do you have any advice for like the NSF fellowship program, like that, that application process? Because I know, it, you know, it's selective to an extent, right? Yeah, I would say the best advice is online already. I think it is Alex Yang website. See if I get that right. It's a particular website of a guy who has compiled his advice. And most importantly, he has compiled winning and honorable mention essays for all fields over the last like 10 years. So you can search and say, okay, I'm applying in material science and let me read what these essays that one recently are. And then you get a really good idea of what committees are looking for. He also even includes reviewer comments for a lot of essays. So that is, that is a really good resource that's already out there. So one other thing is that you're talking about scholarships for you. I wanted to ask you that during your application trials, how did scholarships affect the professors you talked to? So for example, I've talked to multiple people in the Bay Area and when they brought in fellowships that they had already secured, they were more likely to get accepted because now the professor didn't have to find funding. Have you seen that in your experience? And could you talk on like how that kind of plays out when you're applying to schools and the timeline of everything? Yeah, so I feel like that for the NSF and NDSEG fellowships, you find out about those after the initial acceptance date. Mm -hmm. So I was already accepted to all of my schools before I found out that I got NSF. So it didn't make a difference in my admission. It did perhaps make a difference in once I chose Stanford, I had a really nice ticket to, okay, I want to work with this professor. And it doesn't really matter if he has the funds for me because I'm providing my own funding. So that was really nice. I wasn't requiring a professor to have a grant. However, I also know people who went from waitlisted or even rejected, then they got NSF and got into their dream schools. Wow. So 
don't give up on it. If you were waitlisted at a school you really, really loved and wait until you find out, see if you get one of those nationwide fellowships. It did not happen automatically. He had to email schools and say, hey, just in case you didn't see, I won this big fellowship. And then the schools reconsidered their offer. So that really can help students out. And then so the NSF that you said that's uh, 34,000 for three years, but PhD programs can usually be four to six years. So what's the deal after that, that three year time period? Yeah. So for most schools, you know, if, if they were borderline going to accept you anyway, or they've already accepted you, the fact that you have NSF just helps the school out. They will then pay for you for the other two years and how they do that depends on the school. So schools that would have paid you less than NSF usually will continue paying you less than NSF, but they may be willing to match it so that you get the NSF amount all five years. Stanford, for most of its students, actually pays higher than NSF. So if you came in with NSF to Stanford for your first three years on NSF, they actually supplement it. And then your years after, the professor pays you at the standards amount. For some schools, especially public schools, you can look up these numbers online or um, talk to current students there. But like for Stanford, you can actually look online and see what is the pay that um, research assistants make and use that as a pretty good estimate. Got it. And how early in the conversation with these professors um, or the school did the the topic of uh, stipends come up? I'm just curious about like the timeline that or how long you wait until you bring that up, because that's an important factor, right? It's actually pretty easy with grad schools. There's less of like a negotiation process. Um, I got the information in my acceptance letters at most places. Oh, okay. Um, so I was getting that in January, February. And then some schools added on, like I said, school-specific fellowships. I'd get an email maybe a week later saying, hey, we admitted you, but guess what? You also get the, you know, WX Jennings Fellowship. And that's an extra $5,000 a year. Whatever it is, they'll, <laughs> they'll add that on. And they try to add that on relatively quickly, I think, so that it, it you can use it to influence your decision of which school to attend. Uh, got it. But yeah, it, it was explicitly put in my acceptance letters of what the standard funding package is. Cool. You're a fountain of knowledge, Lily. So that, that was super helpful. And so speaking of, you know, these advanced degree options, um, Sam, there's also an option for a potential MSc to get their master's or their PhD after spending a couple of years in industry, kind of like you mentioned earlier in the episode. Can you talk us through some of the, the benefits and, and the disadvantages of this path forward? Yeah. So uh, let's, let's first, I guess, uh, think about the, the master's after a couple of years in industry, which I think is what most people do if they're going to get a grad degree after going to industry. Uh, And so many large employers will pay for your master's degree, will will reimburse you for the tuition. And that would be while you're working full-time at the the company and then doing the master's part-time on the side, uh, which could take, you know, three or so years potentially, rather than the standard like one to two for a master's full-time. But the, the benefit there is that, well, A, you're not paying for it. Although you usually have to stay at the company for a couple of years after you finish the master's to keep the full reimbursement. And you've also gotten a few years of experience. You sort of progressed your career by a few years. And so you can pick a master's that fits your career goals more effectively than you could as a college student. You know, you, you might decide, hey, you know, I really like management, kind of done with engineering. Let me get an MBA, right? And I, I think that, that that can be helpful for ending up in the ideal like long-term job that you want to end up in. In my case, I'm kind of interested in like traditional 
engineering disciplines like mechanical engineering to supplement my material skills. Uh, and I hadn't really realized this in, in undergrad. And so if I had gone straight to a master's, I wouldn't, I, I guess I just would have done it in material science. And I don't think it would have been as effective to my career as hypothetical masters in a different field of engineering would be for me now. Uh, the disadvantage is that a, I mean, you have a few years where you're working pretty hard because you, you have, you know, 10 to 20 hours outside of work that you're spending on the masters in addition to 40 hours uh, doing your, your day job. Right. And the part-time masters is probably just going to be a coursework based masters, meaning you're just taking classes. And if you really want to go into an R&D type position in industry, uh, thesis-based masters would be even better because then you would have some graduate level research training that otherwise would be hard to find unless you get a PhD. So on the PhD side of things, I have heard of people who, at least at L3 Harris, have done a PhD part-time, kind of like a master's part-time. However, it sounds like a very arduous process, right? You're potentially spending like 10 years on the, the PhD doing it part-time. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, there, there are people who, who are so immersed in their field and, and enjoy their, their industry job and the research so much that, that that sounds appealing to them. There's also the possibility, right, to just leave industry entirely and get your PhD, which I guess if for people who get PhDs after going to industry, I think that's probably more common. And anecdotally, I've read that, that people who do this tend to be better prepared for the PhD than people coming straight out of undergrad. So they've already had experience living life like an adult and, and working a normal full-time job. And so I really discuss the flexibility that you have as a PhD student. And I think that flexibility for some people is kind of like a double-edged sword, right? It's really convenient when you need to go to the bank before the bank closes or you want to shift your hours to like the hours where you're most productive. But it's dangerous, I think, because you can, like an industry job sort of forces you to show up between certain hours and at least try to be productive, right? Which is good for instilling like a good work ethic. And I have heard of PhD students who they've kind of lost interest and then their quality of work has slipped and they haven't had that experience that you have in industry uh, that, that I guess teaches you some discipline in your, in your work life. So anyways, the people who go to industry and then start a PhD tend to have that, that preparation that, that other students don't. Yeah, but statistically, from what I understand, most people who go to industry thinking they're going to then return and get a PhD don't. <laughs> uh, and I was like, oh, I, I'll, I'll be the exception, right? And then once I got to industry, I gained a different perspective and I kind of understood that statistic better. Yeah. And I feel like, again, this is just from what I've heard that you get used to a certain lifestyle, a certain salary that you're making, and you'd have to make maybe a decision to go back to school, which is a different lifestyle altogether, and maybe like adjust your finances too. So I don't know if that's true, but that's that's what I've heard in, in my head. That makes sense. See, I heard that too. And so I, I like throttled my spending to the level of like a PhD stipend when I first started my job. And it's still pretty low. So I still have a pretty high savings rate. And I think that's an oversimplification, right? I suspect that industry is a better fit for more people than academia. I, I don't know why it's the case, but I think that's the, the split, right? Which means that beyond just the lifestyle creep, which I think only applies to some people, there's, there's also this factor that people come to industry and they find something that's a better fit for them. And as a result, they, they stick with it, right? Totally true. Yeah, I think that's really good insight. I think the thing that 
that you didn't gloss over, but I think deserves extra emphasis is that you would be working 60 hours a week for around three years. And I don't know how many people have actually worked 60 hours a week, but burnout is extremely common and just, it is a lot. So unless you're really dedicated to both your job and this higher level of degree, it's a really hard value proposition to, it, that's basically like working like 9, 9 a.m. to like 11 p.m. every single day for three years, I think, or something like that. So it's just ridiculous hours. And just, I, that, that's like the major point of emphasis that I want to put on that is that uh, when you contextualize it like that, it sounds a lot less easy than like, oh yeah, I'll just do it on the side. I, I'd like to counter that by saying that I think a lot of PhD students, not all, but some are working 60 plus hours a week for not three years, but five or six years, right? Yeah. For, for considerably lower pay. So. I, I don't know. I, I I see it as not as as intense as as you're describing, uh, but that could just be the bias I have from seeing a lot of people around me who are either doing this and surviving just fine, or ha- who have done it and like would recommend it if that makes sense. Like thought it was a positive influence on their career and don't regret doing the masters. I think it boils down to just like passion for the subject matter though. Cause again, I'd like to hear like Lily's perspective too on how much time she's currently spends in her PhD program. But for me, you know, while I spend 40 plus hours with Boston Scientific, we also spend quite a few like hours every week on like this podcast and um, everything surrounding it. So that in my mind adds up to 50 to 60 hours every week, but it's enjoyable and I like where it's headed. Right. So I guess for me, I have that flexibility where if I don't want to work on a certain day, then I don't have to, maybe there, that flexibility exists for um, these advanced degree programs, but I just wanted to put that out there. That passion also goes a long way and just motivation as well. Might not feel like as much work, which might not lead to burnout as often. Yeah, I, I've got a decent bit to say about intensity of a PhD program, if you want me to kind of... <laughs> yeah, go for it. <laughs> yeah, so I feel like the intensity, the hours per week that you work um, is really a lot of what you make of it in the PhD program, because you get to choose your boss. And so if you are not wanting to work 60 hours per week, then I think there's some red flags you can look for when you're going to visit days at schools you know, before you choose your department, you can talk to professors in that school. And then after you've chosen your school, you can keep talking to professors before you um, officially join a lab. I think there's red flags within departments. And I think there can also be red flags within professors. There's also green flags, which I, I can talk about some of those too. But here's some actual things that I heard when I was going to visit weekends. And it was, oh yeah, we all work 60 hours per week, but it's not like this professor's making us do that. We just like doing it. That doesn't, that's not a good sign. <laughs> all the students in a lab are working 60 hours per week. Even if it's true that the professor's not requiring it, it could then mean that if you go in and are wanting to work 40 hours per week, you're then working a lot less than all the other students in the lab and the professor's going to see it as you being less productive. It would be a very difficult environment to be part of. I also heard professors who said, the more motivated you are to work extra, the better. The more you work, the better. And that is a another kind of big red flag that I've seen. On the flip side, some green flags were professors who say, you know, you work better um, when you're um, healthy and, you know, your mental health is good. So make sure you're taking breaks. And I understand if, you know, you need to do whatever. 
I talked to students in labs who said, you know, I, I set my own schedule and I go for a long walk every afternoon to clear my mind. That might mean that he stays in the lab till six o'clock, but he took an hour long walk every day. And that is, um, I feel like that's a really healthy way to use the flexibility of a PhD schedule. So all this to say, there's definitely PhD students who work 60 hours a week. And some of those people love it. <laughs> there's also PhD students who only work 40 hours a week. And especially once you get into the later part of your PhD program, I feel like this is very feasible. So for, for me right now, I'm doing primarily coursework, but also starting my research. And I've heard, you know, this first year is the hardest year because I've got basically almost 40 hours a week of homework and classes that I'm doing, but I'm also expected to go in and do four hours of group meetings and do these experiments. And each experiment takes five hours to set up and, you know, whatever else. So it is a, a tough first year, but then once I'm doing primarily research, my mentality, and I think the mentality of a lot of people in the lab is you're being paid for 40 hours a week. So make sure you're doing the amount that you're being paid for and be flexible so that if there's times when you need to put in extra work, you're able to do that. Like, for example, um, your lab gets time at the Synchrotron facility. You need to be able to put in the work um, in those days when you're at the national lab or whatever, you've got a grant application that you need to make sure your lab gets in, or you put in a paper and the reviewers put in comments and you've got to make your edits right away. There will be crunch weeks in any job, but I feel like once you're in the research part of a PhD, you can start treating it more like a standard job and that will help with the work-life balance. Yeah, that's a really good point. I just wanted to add that emphasis that it's important not just to talk to the professor, but also the people who are in the lab, like the PhD students that are in the lab too, because that gives you a better, a more comprehensive picture of the environment that you'd be in. And also like what other people's maybe mental health situations look like, not really in that sense, but just like how much time you can, you're expected to provide to the lab and things like that. Yeah, I would say you can really ask people these questions outright. You can ask them directly, how many hours per week are you expected to work? How many hours per week do you actually work? Do you on average enjoy this? Would you recommend it to someone else? If you had it to do over again, would you pick this school? If you had it to do over again, would you pick working for this professor? There will be students who may not be comfortable answering directly, but from my experience, most students were happy to answer. Even the students who gave red flag answers were happy to give those answers. <laughs> so I recommend just asking the students in addition to the professors, that's a great point. One other thing that we want to touch on is now we talk, ask Sam, what happens if you go to work and then PhD? But now we want to ask you, what happens when you do your PhD and then go to work? What does that transition look like? Or what does the transition from PhD to your next step look like? Yeah, okay. So there's um, a couple things with this. I think for me, I wanted to find a professor who would be comfortable letting me take time off to do some internships. Most professors, I would say, are like, yes, you know, make sure you do that. Take, take the internship. It's good for your future career. That's, that's a good green flag. I also had a professor when I was interviewing say, you can only take an internship if it directly relates to your research. I don't want you taking time off just because it's an interesting job for you. And I was, didn't know what to make of that, but I, I didn't go to that school. <laughs> um, <laughs> Anyway, I think taking an internship during the PhD can be helpful for all the same reasons that doing internships during undergrad can be helpful. As far as the roll off from PhD into your next position, there's definitely certain things that having a PhD is specifically important for. 
So if you want to be a professor at a research university, you need to have a PhD. There's no way around it. As well as most research positions at national labs specifically require a PhD. Even in industry, there's certain types of R&D roles that a master's won't cut it. You need a PhD. There's R&D roles where a master's and experience will be good enough. There's even roles, you know, there's certain things where you can have your bachelor's or master's plus experience, and it makes up for not having a PhD. But there's certain things where you, you really need the PhD. And I think that's because, you know, you've shown I can spend five years doing a research project. This shows I've got good research skills, but also, you know, time management, problem solving, whatever else, it's a good way for companies to filter out to make sure you have those skills. So I think if those are types of jobs that you're interested in, that the super research focus or um, teaching at a research university, then a PhD is going to be a good fit for you. I will say though, if, if what you love is teaching more than research, then a PhD isn't the only way to get to that um, because you can be what's called the professor of the practice and you can teach classes at even good schools where you're only teaching, you know, one class a semester or something or one class every so often. Like Georgia Tech had this. We had a couple of professors, um, I know, in civil engineering and in materials engineering where they'd say, OK, you know, I work for this alloy company and I'm going to come teach a class about alloy selection for product design, even without having a PhD. Could you elaborate on if you do want to go to be a professor in a research institute, what that process looks like, or are you not as familiar? I can talk about it a little bit, um, specifically the best ways to set you up for it. And this is a, a pill that can be hard to swallow, but I've heard, you know, if you really want to be a professor, then the school that you go to starts to matter more. If you go to industry, they mostly care that you have the degree. But if you want to be a professor, then you want to be aiming for, you know, a top 15 school if possible, because that is actually going to help you as unfair as it sounds. Also, you know, when you're doing your PhD, working on having first author papers, the more of those, you know, that that's a really good sign. Spending some time TAing, ironically, you know, working as a teaching assistant means you're spending less time on research. Um, but it can show that you've spent some time in lesson prep, which can be good. And then finally, just, you know, be ready to realize that the road to being a professor is a long one. You know, you'll get your PhD that can take up to six years or more, and then you'll get one or two postdoctoral positions, which can each take a couple of years. And so you are looking at not being a professor. You know, most of the youngest professors are starting out, you know, maybe 30 years old. So that is a, a long time to be starting a career. Um, because here's a little secret, postdoctoral scholars, especially ones at universities, make barely more than PhD students. So that is keeping on the super low salary for a long time in your life. Postdoc scholars who work for a national lab or there's a limited number of postdocs sponsored by industry. I know in chemistry, there's some pharma companies that will sponsor postdocs. They make more normal salaries, but it is definitely um, if you want to be a professor, you are further continuing to put off your savings. Wow. Yeah, this seems very similar to like the med school approach. And what I've heard from, from that point of view, if you want to be a doctor, you have to be willing to put the time and you have to really love it because like for most of your 20s, you're not going to be making like doctor money, right? But you're going to be learning a lot along the way. So yeah, it seems I see a lot of parallels in, in that process. And, and if you really want to be a professor, some of the things in as a PhD student and as a postdoc mirror the responsibilities of professors in a lot of ways. So if you love it, 
you're making less money, but you're sort of starting to do the job you love even before you have that title. You're doing a lot of similar things. So if you really love it, then go for it. There's kind of um, a more narrow path to get there. Yeah, that that's super informative. I know that there's not great clarity, especially as an undergrad, that you want to go into a PhD. I don't think many of us would have known all that information about exactly what you have to pay to become a professor. So one important thing that we wanted to touch on is mental health. We brought it up earlier in this episode. And so I guess we'll start with the PhD side of things. But Lily, what should our audience know from, I guess, the intensity standpoint and what steps can they take to make sure they're taking care of themselves, both mentally and physically outside of just checking in with your group and your professor about the, the situation, the environment that's created? Yeah, I guess I would say, kind of like I said before, the intensity is what you make of it. Mm -hmm. And so making sure that you are in a department and working with a professor that really respects you and understand, you know, what is a work-life balance? They understand that you're there to do work, but they're not treating you as a lab machine. They're treating you as a human. I think that makes a huge difference. Just realizing that you can say, hey, this, this, is, this is overwhelming right now and I need a break for whatever reason, knowing that they will respect that. I think that makes the biggest difference is your environment. As far as specific steps you can choose once you're already in the environment, I think it's important to try to connect with the other students in your group. So if you can have people that you're doing homework with, you know, if that's allowed, then that's a really good step. I think that making sure that you're going outside and getting some exercise and making sure that you're eating healthy and not just eating the free pizza every day, that that's a good thing too. And then finally, if if things get really bad, which I don't know of anybody this has happened to, but grad students can take uh, one or two leaves of absence. So you can take a semester off for your mental health. And if that is something you realize you need, that is an option. Like I said, I, I don't, I don't know if people have done this. I know people who have used a leave of absence, for example, like during the pandemic, so they could go take care of their family. That's how I've seen it used. But you, you can also use it um, kind of as a mental health break too. Yeah, and it's totally valid to do so. And then I guess I wanted to hear Sam and David's side from, from the industry side, but from the mental health perspective, one thing that I recently read about that just helps because we have projects that they're not done in a day, right? So you could theoretically keep working on them. Um, one thing that's helped me is, so I, I'm reading a book called Deep Work and it talks about creating a shutdown ritual at the end of the day where you can't just like, just shut everything down in the middle of working something. It's working on something, it's harder to do so, but you can kind of just take 15 minutes at the end of your day to plan out what hasn't been finished yet and then just like incorporate it into your calendar for the next couple of days or next couple of weeks. And just um, the comfort of knowing that it'll get done on time really helps in just shutting down for the day and separating your work from like the rest of your evening. So that that's my two cents, but Sam, uh, David, do you have anything else to add there? Yeah. So the shutdown ritual, I've, I've read about that too. And I, I guess I don't have one of those and I feel like I don't need it, but uh, I work almost every day in person because I work in the lab. And so I have a, a physical desk that's in the, the building, right? Where I have my post-it notes and a whiteboard and my notebook and then my calendar and basically everything I need to, to keep track of the projects I'm working on. 
And so after, you know, the time for the day is done, I just get up and leave. And then when I come back the next morning, everything is as I left it, right? Because it's my desk. Uh, and then in that interim period, right, I, I don't have to worry about work creeping into my life. If I haven't taken anything home with me, right, I can't actually work on the, the projects, right? And so as a result, I don't really think about them. And instead, I think about things in my life that are important to me outside of work that I, I want to give my full attention to, right? I, I think that for people who are working from home part or the entire week, like like you, I, I suspect that that's a lot more important to, to kind of curate a behavioral line between your work and your personal life. Yeah, absolutely. I, I primarily work from home and I, I love the flexibility of it. Um, I love the the time it saves from the commute, but that is the one thing that I need to instill for myself. And I think I've been pretty good about it is just separating work, like both this physical space from like the rest of my life, which is also setting like time constraints too. It's easy to get caught up in a project when you're in that flow state. Um, but sometimes you kind of just have to like stop and say, this can wait for another day. But yeah, David, do you have anything else to add? Yeah, I would say that I probably break both your rules and that I work in person. And again, I bring my laptop home and I continue to work. And it's a double-edged sword because one side is that we're driving innovation and we're discovering new things every day. And it's very exciting and we need like results quickly. But the other side is that there is a point where it's too much. And so that's where it kind of teeter-totters. And like when I'm working 60 hours a week, like that's when it starts to get too much. And so it's just very important to know that like, it's not a bad thing to want to keep on improving and iterating and seeing results, but it is a bad thing when like you can't physically bring yourself to do it anymore. And so the really important part is just knowing your boundaries. And then if there's unrealistic expectations from your boss or from higher ups, that's either a culture fit that doesn't work or you need a conversation with them. And so just being clear and transparent about how exactly you feel uh, and then their response will tell you everything you need to know about where you work. And so that's like the most important thing is just being clear and honest. If it's not working, it's not working. But if you don't tell anybody, it's kind of, it's not your own fault, but you're not going to have a solution for a longer time unless you like face it head on. So that's definitely my advice. Just be transparent and Hopefully they understand that if not, maybe it's not the best working environment for you. Uh, kind of our last question we want to ask you was, if you had to go through the entire process again, what advice would you give your past self in making the decision you made? Yeah, so I think the, the most effective thing I could do would be to explain the sunk cost fallacy to my past self. Because I, I think that that fallacy can really lead people astray. Uh, so if you haven't heard of it before, the sunk cost fallacy is a mistake people make, um, which they keep doing something that's that's not working because they've already invested some time or money into that, that opportunity, right? So imagine you, you go to the movie theater, you buy a ticket, uh, and you start watching the movie and it's awful, right? Like, like so painful to watch, right? Not, not even like so bad it's good. It's just so bad it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> and so a lot of people, they'll stay in the theater because they want to get their money's worth, right? It's like, well, I already paid, right? I'm not going to leave. But that means they're just investing more time into this awful experience, right? Uh, it's like, oh, instead of just paying like $10 for the ticket, now you're paying $10 in two hours of your life, right? And so 
I think that the same the same fallacy can apply to career decisions where if a particular career path isn't working and it's probably not going to improve in the future, it's worth it to just cut your losses there uh, and then try something else rather than saying, oh, I've already spent so much time going down this path. I don't want all that time to be for nothing, right? And so I know that, that in college, I spent a lot of time on opportunities that perhaps weren't a very good fit for me, but I kept doing them because I already spent so much time working on them, right? And what I should have done is, is just stopped once I'd noticed that it wasn't working and then tried something else. And so in a sense, I'm lucky that I let myself try industry instead of telling myself, oh, I've already spent so long preparing for PhD programs. Uh, I don't want all that time to be for nothing. Uh, and then I forced myself to do something that might not have been as good of a fit as what I found. That's a really, really good point. And I think even, you know, after you graduate, when you're making that decision, it's important to realize that like even your first job, it does not, it's not a permanent like choice, right? Like it's not even a long-term choice per se. People leave their job after a couple of years, like more often than not. So you can pivot industries, like you have a lot of flexibility there. So that's also something to keep in mind that your decision by no means is permanent. Um, it's an important decision, but you have flexibility and, you know, you can just continue to learn regardless of the decision that you make. So I'm glad you made that point, Sam. Well, I guess I did want to say that, that I quite like my job, but certainly going into it, it's helpful to know that, you know, it's, it's not permanent, right? Uh, I mean, even a PhD doesn't have to be permanent. A lot of people don't want to think about this, but you can, you can drop out and at least at some schools, uh, you can, if you've attained the master's, you can keep that, right? I, I don't know, Lily, do you have any comments on that from the PhD side? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely get to that point too. I guess we'll, we'll ask you the same question then about like advice you'd give to your past self or maybe an MSE currently making this, deci this decision. What would you encourage them to reflect on and maybe what should they try during their undergrad experience that may help them make their decision more confidently? Yeah, so I'd say, you know, if you're thinking about two options, the best thing you can do is kind of give them both a trial run. So the fact that I did some full-time research and full-time industry, I think that's really helpful. I think the fact that it's full-time specifically um, gives you a better picture than just like part-time research on the side and can help you think, you know, so we talked about uh, consistency in industry, flexibility in academia. See how you respond to both of those. Uh, or we talked about getting a solution that's good enough and then maybe having more results, more results pushed out to market faster in industry versus continuing to explore something and explore something until you really understand it in academia. Think about which of those you prefer as a good way to think about what you want. But then um, to echo everyone else, I think the most important thing to remember is this is a big decision and it feels like the biggest decision, but it's really not. You can totally change your mind later if you realize that your career ideas change. Because once you start something, you get your job in industry, you get a new perspective. Or me, you know, working as, as a PhD student, getting a new perspective, your career goals can change. You don't have to finish your PhD program. Sam is right. It is not super publicized, but yes, you can at most schools, if you don't end up finishing the program, if you've attained enough credits, um, you can petition to get a master's degree on your way out. I would say this is a good reason to try to make sure you have an advisor who's understanding and another good reason. A good advisor will understand if you say, hey, research life isn't for me. 
it's just not for me. They're not going to want to force you to keep going in something you don't want. And they will want to set you up best for your new career. And so they will help you um, with the transition and they will help you petition to get your master's degree. So yes, you can, you can leave your grad school program and still get good jobs in industry, especially if you spin it to the industry, you know, as, Hey, you know, I thought I wanted this grad degree, but it turned out that wasn't my passion. They're going to understand. They're not going to see it as a dropout failure. Um, it is, it is not going to be a permanent bad mark on you. Similarly, we also talked about this. You can start an industry and then go back to grad school, either um, getting it paid for by your company and doing that kind of thing, or you can just stop your job and go work. Um, so I know more than 10% of my PhD cohort at Stanford worked in industry for, you know, three or four years before starting their PhD program. And I do think that can give some benefits, you know, because these people are coming in and when you talk to them, you realize they know exactly what they want. They know why they want the PhD. They know how it's going to help them and they know how to make the PhD work for them. Um, so I, I definitely think that's another good step to take. So basically, it's a big decision. You want to make it the best that you can now, but also give yourself some peace and knowing that uh, it's not a permanent decision. And if you realize that things change in the future, you can absolutely um, switch it around and you're not stuck in one career path for the rest of your life. Yeah, that's really good. I would just add on to that by saying like, try as many things as possible during undergrad, just to get a taste of what you like and what you don't like and reflecting on that exactly what you mentioned about, you know, impact sooner rather than later, but also versus like pushing the, the frontiers of materials research and continuing to be able to, to pursue knowledge. That's a great point there. And you can, you know, gain more experiences through leadership, like joining student organizations by joining different research groups. I think that's something I wish I did is not just, you know, have one research experience and think that's how research is always like. And then same thing with internships to having multiple internships in different industries. There are a lot of possibilities for MSCs. That's a good thing and a bad thing, but it's an opportunity to continue to try something else and try something new. I guess I'll add one thing, which is to echo what Sam said earlier. I really like my job. <laughs> I like being a PhD student, um, at least for right now, I'm happy with the decision I made. I love living on a campus. It's beautiful. Um, I really like getting to work with my friends on my homework problems. Like in some ways, it still feels like I'm an undergrad, but the truth is I loved undergrad. So I, I actually really enjoy the PhD work and I love my lab and the people I'm working with in my lab and I enjoy the experiments I'm trying to run. So, you know, there, there's, there's pros and cons to both things and I, I really love what I'm doing. I thought this was a really great conversation, sharing both perspectives, both sides, and delving into some of the factors that come into play. And so, yeah, Sam and Lily, I, I wanted to thank you guys so much for sharing your stories, sharing your experiences. Yeah, you guys are both wealths of knowledge, so I, I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you both for having us on the podcast. We appreciated this opportunity to talk through this. It's a pretty interesting topic for me. Yeah, I agree. Thank you for having us, and I enjoyed our conversation a lot. As a materials engineer, we can make an impact in nearly every single industry. But with that versatility comes a lot of options to choose from. So if you have no idea which position or industry is right for you, you're not alone. I've been there, done that. But just for a moment, imagine narrowing down your ideal role and company within the week. Imagine being able to secure your dream offer without having to apply to hundreds of job openings. Our online course, MSE Academy, 
includes video testimonials, resumes, interview prep, and mentorship from materials engineers who have been in your shoes. We also connect our members with companies and industry professionals in our expansive network to help accelerate your job search process as much as possible. To learn more and get started, simply click the link in the show notes below. And if you enroll within the next 24 hours, we'll add three bonus career-related resources. I hope to see you there.